Today on the podcast, I interviewed my husband, Mike, about his experience as a man navigating male factor infertility. This is a rare peek into the mind of a man going through this vulnerable time and upfront insight on an often avoided topic. Although this journey was lonely for him, with one in 10 men struggling to conceive today, he realized after his experience that it's important to share if he can help even just one other couple have the family they dream of. We discussed what it was like for him to find out about his sperm, what the six-year journey to conception was like, what support he received and wished he had had, and what he would recommend other men navigating this major obstacle do. He has such wisdom to share and practical tips for men and their partners as they navigate male factor infertility. Let's dive in. Welcome to Healthy as a Mother, the podcast for becoming and being a mother with your co-hosts, Dr. Leah Gordon and Dr. Morgan McDermott, two naturopathic doctors who get it. Each week, we teach you how to be the healthiest mother you can be, from fertility and preconception to pregnancy and birth prep, through postpartum and throughout motherhood, empowering you with the natural health guidance and education you're not getting elsewhere, so you can confidently navigate the broken system at large. The real, the raw, the untalked about. And remember, this information is not intended to diagnose, treat, or manage any disease. Always consult with your doctor before making any changes. Okay, before we hop into male factor infertility, honey, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself, where you're from, what you like to do, just so people can get to know you a little bit. So I am from Florida originally. I was born in St. Pete. I was raised in Miami in South South Beach. And when I was 16, I moved to Colorado. And I went to finish high school at Aspen High. And then I went to CSU, where I met you. Mm-hmm. There for five years, um, and then I went to Seattle for my first job, and then which uh, was what uh, refueling subs for the Navy. So you're and a nuclear. I, you were a nuclear engineer. You're yep. so humble. <laughs> and then uh, in 2013, you and I relocated to San Diego, mm-hmm. and I've been working in biotech since. So amazing. Yeah. Awesome. Well, why don't you, some people know our story of how we kind of found out about your sperm, but for Mm -hmm. those of you who don't, I'll just recap it quickly. And then I want to ask you questions about it. So I was in naturopathic medical school in my second year when we were doing a sperm analysis class, we had already been married, moved to San Diego and we weren't trying to conceive at that part at that time in our lives. We just assumed we'd get pregnant as soon as I graduated school. And we needed a sample for school. We were analyzing sperm under the microscope. So you gave me a sample. And that day, I basically discovered that you had no viable sperm, at least in the samples that I took. It was one of the worst days of my life. And then I had to break the news to you that day and we don't get your perspective from the story very often. So why don't you kind of walk us through what that was like to, to hear about that from me? Well, um, I picked you up from med school that day and I, I could tell something was immediately wrong. And then when you told me, you, you, I remember you literally said, this doesn't make you any less of a man, but you know, and, um, I initially kind of shrugged it off because I had been saunaing a lot. Like I love the sauna. 
So I can go in the sauna for an hour and a half, two hours at a time. And so I'm like, I'm like, you know, if, and that's a hot traditional sauna. So when you told me that I originally thought like, all right, well, that, that's, that's just gotta be the sauna. So I wasn't too, too concerned. Um, you know, I was like, all right, well, we'll just stop sauning and then, uh, and then it should be fixed. So I did that. I stopped sauning for like three months and then we checked again and there was nothing. And I was mm-hmm. expecting, I was expecting to be completely normal at that point. So it takes mm-hmm. three months. Uh, I think we checked at four months, nothing, like nothing. And what was that like for you? Um, that was really concerning. That was, that was devastating. Um, because I all, all of a sudden have a massive problem that I didn't know I had. And so, um, that was like the world closing in. Cause at that point we decided to start trying. Mm-hmm. Like that was like at the, at the point of our lives where we're like, all right, let's, let's actually try to conceive here. And then it's a big decision to do that. It's a huge decision to say, Oh yeah, this is, this is the moment we're going to try to conceive. And then to find out that you have no sperm, like under the microscope, you don't even see sperm. Mm-hmm. They're like not there. So it wasn't like I have a low sperm count or, you know, they're not like swimming fast. There was like nothing there. So um, I think the the real heavy hitter for me was three months, four months after you told me that I didn't have sperm in my sample. Mm-hmm. And that, then that was like, all right, we have a real problem. Mm-hmm. And then um, when we started to investigate that, I mean, we went to a conventional doctor in San Diego they did a they did a test. My sperm count literally said zero, with the number zero, um, from for motel sperm, and so you know they they did a bunch of tests and they said, well, you have you know you have bilateral varicoceles, so varicoceles on both sides. They said that could be contributing. And they for anyone a- who doesn't know, varicoceles are basically swollen veins um, around and near the testicles that can cause sperm issues. So we found that you had two, you know, one on either side. And at the time, like, how did that feel to receive that diagnosis? Uh, no, it doesn't, it didn't bother me at all. Um, any, not anybody, most people who weightlift, um, especially legs, they're, they are most likely going to have some version. It might not be like a super bad case, but I mean, I, I've been, you know, um, lifting heavy since I was like 11, 12, so mm-hmm. it wasn't a big deal to have that diagnosis because just because you have, you have varicoceles doesn't mean you don't have sperm. It just means, you know, you can have fewer count or maybe not as good quality. So that doc wanted to go in and do a basically fix both sides, bilateral varicocelectomy. And that procedure, um, it's not the most fun, that, that procedure. They, grow, they go in through your, like your pubic area and, and, um, obviously it didn't feel the procedure during the procedure, but recovering from that was, was pretty tough. Um, well, and we didn't do that right away. We tried functional oh, that's true. medicine that, yeah. stuff for that a while true. before we, we resorted to that. Yeah. We went down the toxicity and the heavy metal path. So that was much heavy. later. Yeah, yeah. That was much later. Mm-hmm. After um, your surgery. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, you want to go in chronological order? 
It's- no, I'm just I'm just saying like I know you can share kind of how the story is. I have written out our whole story if people are interested on my blog at womanhoodwellness.com slash blog. But what I'm interested in knowing is sort of how how your experience was. So I guess you can keep chatting through it. You don't need to necessarily relay the whole story okay, okay, in right. chronological order. Um it was it was the, it was an emotional roller coaster because Every time I got a new piece, I tried to latch on to um, that diagnosis or something as the answer, and almost everything had a solution. So if it was heavy metals, we can go and I can do two, three IVs a week and chelate it out and sweat it out. Um, if it was toxicity, I can take the right supplements, the right herbs. I can sauna and sweat it all out. If it was um, by varicoseals, they could mm-hmm. fix it surgically. If, um, you know, if, if it was a plumbing problem, maybe they could fix it, whatever it was, there was always this, there, there always seemed to be a solution to the, whatever problem we figured it must be. Um, and then every time we fixed one of the problems and then went to test and, you know, we had, this is, by the way, this is incredibly time consuming. So we'd fix a problem and we'd have to wait three to six months. And then we would go in being like, all right, we, we must have had it. We must have figured it out. We got the root cause, fixed the root cause. And then every single time it got, it basically stayed flat. It was no sperm, no sperm, no sperm. So it was, you know, it was like high moments where we kind of figured it all out. And then really low moments when none of them worked. None mm-hmm. of like none of them. So, yeah, it was, it was, um, it was crushing. And, and what was that like, you know, going to so many different doctors, so many appointments, because we started investigating your gut health and, you know, we did all sort of different functional inflammation root cause stuff. And we did the varicocele surgery before I became a doctor because it was two more years before I graduated because we found your toxins because I ran those labs. So I was already licensed at that time and I found it because you had a high homocysteine, but basically what was it like to just be kind of shuttled from doctor to doctor and have all of these high and low moments, like for other people going through this, you know, what was that like? And what would you say for someone who's just starting this journey? Um, I would tell them that it, it, it's not always complicated, but it can be complicated, especially in, in cases like mine where there's multiple factors causing it, you know? Um, and we still, even to this day, we don't know with hundred percent certainty what my issue was. So, um, having, having patience, um, is, is incredibly important and maintaining a positive attitude. I mean, I don't like when people, the worst thing is when people say, oh, you'll figure it out. There's always a solution. And, and, you know, it's almost like false hope. Um, so it's like, it's, it's a, for me, it was a balance of maintaining a positive attitude and, and kind of releasing expectations and just kind of a matter, matter of factly going through each one. Um, and then, I mean, my, my, I guess my advice was from a man, from man going through this, um, is don't be afraid to get more information. Don't be afraid to just go get the information that you're afraid of learning. For mm-hmm. me, it's like, I kind of don't want to do this crazy, um, genetic test that costs a thousand dollars because it's, it could be more bad news. So it's like, I can just kick that off into the future. Or I don't necessarily want to do a sperm analysis because, you know, I don't really want to know the, the solutions. 
or, or the, the, sorry, the, the, um, the results. And so it, I, I think delaying because you're afraid is the, is the worst thing. Just rip it, just rip the bandage, bandage off, go do the test, figure out what's going on and get, get to an answer quicker than, than, you know, what we, we had like what, six, seven year journey before we, we actually were successful. Yeah. So, years. yeah, yeah it was, so- it was that that's a good point because a lot of men that I see and a lot of men of women that I see don't want to test or they don't think anything's wrong with them. Looking back now, you know, we obviously found out about your sperm in a roundabout way. You didn't just go in and get a semen analysis, but was there anything in your case, in your history that you felt was red flags that now looking back, you're like, Hmm, I wonder if that was something that would have jogged me to go check my sperm at a younger age or sooner in the journey? Is there anything for you? I mean, in hindsight, there were a lot of things that I did that make me, make me question whether they, they were good decisions. Like there's, for, for example, like spraying pesticides as a teenager um, for my job. That was probably not a good idea, uh, at least with, without a mask or anything like that. And we're not wearing gloves when I was doing working with chemicals. Um, those are all things. But as far as like, in hindsight, is there any way it was, there, was there a red flag that could have told me my, my ejaculate has never been white. So that it's never, it's never been white. It's always had, it's always been some, some form of transparent. Um, and so that was probably the only thing that could have given me an idea. I mean, varicoceles when you're hot, like if you're coming, if you're, you know, when working outside, you should be able to feel varicoceles yourself, you know, just like they call they call it a bag of worms. You should be able to feel that. Um, and they, they're not always present. Like I can, I, I used to be the minor, minor fix, but when I, when I did have them, you know, I did, I only felt them sometimes like, like after the gym, you'll feel, them. but. And um, did you know at the time what it was you were feeling or you just, you didn't really know you just knew you felt um, something. A urologist once told me that, that they were uh, varicoceles, but that was no big deal. You know, it's not like a life threatening thing. But he never warned you about fertility. No, I don't think so. That's so crazy. Um, um, I mean, I bet at the time, or at the time that this that I was told I had um, varicoceles, having babies was not on my mind. It, he, the doctor, may have said it, and I was just not paying attention. Like, what are you talking about? I'm, that's that's in my future. Mm-hmm. But I don't remember being told, and I had no. When you told me that I had no sperm, I had that was the first time I had the inkling that I had a reproductive problem. Mm-hmm. Besides yeah. the fact that my sperm was never, was never, my semen was never uh, white. Right. But most men probably wouldn't know that that's abnormal. Uh, so what are some other things that you feel? So based on our, our findings, you know, you had the varicoceles, you had toxin exposure, um, potential toxin exposure in utero when you were a baby, and then a genetic issue that we found at the very end of our infertility, even though the fertility doctor checked it initially. He never told us anything about it. He didn't tell us the results of the cystic fibrosis associated disorders mutation that we think maybe affected the development of the vas deferens, which is where the sperm comes out. You know, it's like the tube that allows it to come out. We found that out by doing genetic carrier testing in prep for IVF. So what was that like to receive that information, which we found out because I did that test 
and it came back positive for you. And I just started looking into it and found that that leads to male factor infertility. No one had told us this. Uh, what was that like to, to hear that? So that, that diagnosis um, or hypothesis made the most sense to me mm-hmm. because it seems like a plumbing issue. Because my case is, is kind of, um, I don't know if it's unique, but you know I, I developed normally, physically. Mm-hmm. Yep, very um, physically I have, normal. <laughs> I have, you know, body hair. I have a beard, like I'm a dude. Yeah. Yep. And yet I have no sperm. And so yeah, there you know, is the no doctor, sign of you physically or, or like, right. And so that actually that there's anything wrong. Yeah. And so a, a plumbing problem makes, seems to make the most sense. And so that, yeah, that's for me, that was, you know, good news. It's, it's basically just more information. Um, and so it was almost, almost relieving. Not that I want to have cystic fibrosis, like related disorders. I don't like, want that. Right. But if it's just like, yeah, they, the, the highway's blocked, um, then at least it explains why I am n- normal male with testosterone that just doesn't have sperm. But yeah, there's a lot in my history that even more than what you said. I mean, yeah, there was, I was exposed to, um, fluoride tablets, like heavy, heavy, heavy amounts of fluoride. I had amalgams, fillings in my mouth, silver fillings with mercury. mercury. I had, um, I used to sp- spray um, commercially, commercial grade um, insecticide and sorry, not insecticide, uh, herbicides in Colorado when I was a teenager and in my early twenties. Um, I was uh, a nuclear engineer. I mean, I the, I stood on top of the on top of a reactor core for for years, not 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 twenty four hours a day, but for a long time. I don't think that that contributed. Honest, honest, honest opinion. I don't think that had anything to do with my problem. Um, but I did a lot of things. It's like, which one was it? There were so many things that it could have been, um, and the cystic fibrosis stuff, which you know plays a role, especially with my heritage seems to make the most sense. So um, the problem with that is that's not any, that's not a super easy fix. Right. And so tell them a little bit, if you feel comfortable about the intuitive that we saw before we found that diagnosis, if you want to share, if not, it's okay. That, well, that intuitive is my mother. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And she's amazing. (laughs) Um, Actually that I had a vision um, that this vision kept me going. I think about this vision all the time. Yeah, that, we had. I just want to before you begin. Yeah. you know this journey was so hard, and we'll get into some other things. But it was a lot of science, a lot of investigation, and then there was a lot of emotional breakdown that we both had, and then a lot of spirituality and faith that really kept us going. And so, I just want to weave that kind of through because that's the reality of our journey. So yeah, keep going. Um, so the, this, this vision happened in my, in my sleep, but it was, it's not a dream. It was, it was more than a dream. Um, it was a message. It was, there was a very, um, there was a significance to it and there was very clearly a message that was being delivered. And in this, um, vision, I walk into a room and the angel of death is standing there and he's huge. And he has a scythe and he's, um, you know, I can't see his face. He's got bones for hands. And I look at him like, bro, no, like he's like, he's an old friend, like not afraid of this guy. 
like I met him a hundred billion times before and I just see him and it's like this time, this time, like I'm not ready. Um, and it was like an old friend. I, honestly, it was bizarre because he mm -hmm. felt like I knew, I knew the angel of death. I knew him and he wasn't evil. He was, mm -hmm. he it was just like his role was to cross people, but I didn't know why I'm seeing him. And I felt as though he was about to take me across. And then he walks up to me and he takes his hands, his bony hands, and he sticks them into my torso and he pulls, grabs my liver and he pulls out my liver and he holds it up and he's showing me this bloody liver. And if you ever go to Subway, Subway sandwiches, and you're looking at the roast beef, you'll see it like glistens, like metallic. It looks dead. <laughs> it's like, it looks like somebody like dripped oil on it. That's yeah. what it looked like. My liver looked dead. It looked lifeless. It looked diseased. And he's holding it in front of my face, like, like, like right in front of my face. And look, and I'm like, I get it. I see it doesn't look good. And he's like, <laughs> no, look. And I kept, you know, being like, I, I okay. And then, he did that like three, four, five times. Just look. And then he takes my liver and he tears it in half. And he shows me the inside. And he, um, sorry, I got a cat here. <laughs> um, he shows me the inside. And it's candy apple blood red. Like we're talking the most fluorescent, vibrant red you've ever seen. Um, and... Like, just like, 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 um, uh, the shoes in Wizard of Oz, like, like super, super vibrant, healthy, bloody. And he did the same thing. Look. And I'm like, okay, look. And then he takes the liver, puts it back together and sticks it back into my body. And then I, I wake up and I'm like, oh shit, I'm dying of liver cancer or liver failure or something like that. And mm -hmm. I was actually really concerned. And I told you, I was like, I think I need to go get my liver checked. I think mm -hmm. this was a message that I got a problem. So we were actually heading to Europe for a trip, you and I. Um, mm -hmm. And so I called, I called my mother, who is, a, she's an intuitive and she's great. And I told her like, hey, I just have this vision. I think I'm sick. I think I'm dying. <laughs> and um, I, I told her the, um, I told her the vision. And then she called me back. When you and I are on a train, she called me back and she says, Hey, I got, I, I got the download on what that was. And she's laughing and she says, they didn't mean to scare you. Um, they wanted to tell, they wanted to send you a message in a way that wouldn't freak you out. And clearly it didn't really work. <laughs> the, they, she says the message you were supposed to receive is the life is on the inside, even though when it looks like it's only death from the outside. So she says, the message is, there's life on the inside of your testicles. There's no life, even though it looks dead from the outside. Mm -hmm. So um, that was a huge moment for me because um, first of all, everything clicked there. And she says, they didn't want to grab your balls and tear them out of your body. She thought <laughs> they thought that that would um, freak you out and it just would be a very unpleasant experience for you. So they went with another vital organ you can't live without is the way she put it. Mm -hmm. And, so when we went on that trip, I felt in my, in my soul that we could have babies. They just had to go in and do testicular retrieval. And this was before we found out about the cystic fibrosis gene. And Jessica also had an 
in a meditation with you where she felt like she could sense the sperm were in there, but they were getting stuck in a maze. Like they couldn't get out. She felt like they were almost like confused, like hitting roadblocks. Like what's what, why, why can't we get out? Yeah. And this Um, was probably a month before we did our genetic test and about two months before we ended up doing IVF with testicular retrieval. And so that meditation and your vision honestly brought me more peace than anything that we had. And when we did that genetic test and found the cystic fibrosis, I felt like it clicked in such a powerful way with the intuitive guidance from her, with your message, and then with this new piece of genetic information, you know, those were the three pieces of evidence that we were going into IVF with, because on the outside, it looked like you had no viable sperm. And we were going based on those pieces of information and faith and hope that Mm -hmm. you did have, you know, sperm on the inside, which was really, really wild. And I just think it's a really cool story. But the, the doctor, the, the Western doctor that I was going to, the urologist, he wanted to do what's called testicular mapping, where they basically take biopsies of the testicles in different, they like drill for oil. They're looking for, they're looking for pockets of sperm. Mm-hmm. And that's not, a, that's not a fun procedure to go through. And I decided against doing that because I, I just believe so, so strongly in the vision that I'm like, this, there's sperm in there. They're going to find sperm when they go. So I'm not going to go through another procedure. I, was, I just had healed up from my bilateral varicocelectomy. Like I said, that mm-hmm. wasn't fun. Um, and they're going to go and do t- They had to do testicular um, retrieval anyway. You can't, do tes- you can't get sperm from a needle. Mm-hmm. That's at least that's what we were told. You can't, you can't, you can't go in with a needle, find sperm, and use that for IVF. They had to go in there, cut everything open, and, and take take tissue. And so we decided against the testicular mapping, really, because of that, because of our faith in that vision. Yeah, which was crazy that that led us. So before we got to this point, though, we had five and a half years basically of trying to figure this out, go down all of these pathways, and before you had your vision before your mom had her vision and before we had the data about the cystic fibrosis, we really were at a point where we were getting to like our wits end of not thinking that this would ever happen for us. Um, We, this is something that a lot of people going through male factor infertility have questions about, which is how do you make this decision to keep going, keep investigating, keep trying versus looking to sperm donors or adoption? And what was that like for you? Um, I, for me, it was, it was very important. It was important to me to have biological children. Like I wanted, I wanted to have, um, you know, children that had my likeness as you know, that some people would call that jello. I, that's something I wanted. I wanted to have children, um, of my own. And I was, you know, I kind of had made peace with the fact that it wasn't, wasn't going to happen. Um, I did make peace with the fact it wasn't going to happen. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, adoption for, adoption for me was kind of a a last resort. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm, I think it's wonderful. And, you know, there's absolutely a possibility we do it someday, but at the time I wanted my own biological children. And so that um, was the drive that just kept you going. Yeah. And also, you know, you, um, you want your part, you, you know, your partner wants kids and your partner, you know, wants to be pregnant and your partner, you, you know, you, I want you to be able to be, go through, go through the, um, the, the, you know, 
the motherhood process, you know, because if, if we if we don't figure something out, we either use a donor and but you and, and you carry that child. But, but I kind of wanted you to carry my child. That, that was the, the goal. You carry my mm-hmm. child. The backup was you carry a donor. And then the, mm-hmm. the third was going to be just full on adoption. But the problem, the sad thing with adoption is if, if you never get to have you never get to go through that process. So my mm-hmm. goal was to give you that. And, and I did make peace with the fact that that might not happen. So my drive was really to give you that. Yeah. And speaking of that, you know, everyone is different. Everyone's experience is different. And I can kind of step into like the interviewee role here and the doctor role and kind of detach myself from the journey. I've done so much of my own work throughout this process and you have too, but I'm just curious what it's like from your perspective, being the man in male factor infertility, when your partner wants a baby, you know, I have my own experience of what it's like being the female in that situation, but what is it like being the male in that space? I think it's, I think it's identical to the way a woman who has, issues, reproductive issues would feel I think it's, it's, it's identical. It gets a, it's, maybe it's a little, it's a little different because as the, as the man, you, you also take on typically the provider role and the protector role. And so you've got, you know, you want to provide and you want to protect, um, and not just, you know, provide money and protect from harm, but you want to provide, um, the experience of motherhood and protect her emotionally and spiritually. Mm-hmm. So like the, the, the provider protector thing plays in all aspects of, of a person. And so, yeah, you, you, whatever a woman would feel going through um, reproductive problems, you know, that that's, that's pretty much, I think what I felt, you know, you have insecurity for sure. You know, but well, what does my partner want to be with me if I can't give them children? And then you have, you know, you think you're, you're lesser than there's something wrong with you. you know, oftentimes you, you wake up thinking you're broken, go to bed thinking you're broken. Um, it's a, it's emotionally traumatic. Mm-hmm. It's traumatizing to go, to go through it. And there's a lot of guilt. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not fun. It's not fun being, uh, go, going through that. And then so- there's also a huge burden financially that, um, you know, we are self-employed. We have a health share that doesn't cover any of this. Mm-hmm. So we've had to come up with an insane amount of money. And that is, that's a huge burden. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, it's $150,000, $160,000 to get our first child. And so that's, that's financial stress you're adding to the family. In addition to all the emotional stress, you're, you're adding, um, financial stress and it's not guaranteed. That's the other thing. IVF is never guaranteed. So we're spending this money. We're doing these procedures. You know, I had two surgeries. You had one, um, to, to, to actually you, you had two, I had two to get to, to get AV at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a huge undertaking on every level to, um, to give it a go. And it isn't guaranteed. And I think you really do have to hope for the best, but have, you know, have, have reasonable expectations. And, um, I, I had, I had given up hope many times. Uh, there were many, many days where I'm just like, this is never going to happen. I'm going to go through it. I'm going to do this procedure or I'm going to go do this test, you know, to make my partner happy, make you happy. 
but um, you know, there were, there were days, not all the time, but there were days when I was just doing it just to make you happy thinking that this is never going to work. Yeah. So going through it, it's so hard on you physically, mentally, emotionally, financially. What were some of the things that you felt like were helpful to help you process and navigate that? And what were things that you wish you had more of in hindsight? Um, well, I felt, I felt like I was going through it alone at the time. I had no idea who else was go- was experiencing male factor infertility. Um, none of my friends that ha- were experiencing that. Everybody seemed to get pregnant, you know, easy. And so I felt very much alone. I had nobody to, who had been through it and nobody to talk to. I wasn't really seeking it out though. I wasn't like, you know, looking for support groups. I'm not, I'm not really one to go to, to support groups, but you know, <laughs> right. there were, I, I felt very much, very much alone. Just like, what would you have wished you had had more now that like you've been through it? Like if someone were in your shoes, navigating male factor infertility, I know everyone's different in how they get relief and you're not much of a talker, but just in general, you know, if, if your buddy came up to you and said, Hey, I was just diagnosed with, you know, male factor infertility, like what would you tell them? would be good for their own sanity going through this. Well, I think having the support team from a medical perspective is important and the right team, because I feel like, um, you know, making the, making the decisions to go through procedures and surgeries and all this stuff. um, It's, it's already challenging, but when you have to doctor hop to find answers, um, it's even more annoying. Um, and so I think I think the biggest support for me would have been having um, all of, all of the all of the possibilities for male factor infertility laid out on the table, and that was never the case. It was it was very much piecemealed here and there. Like here's a little here's a little thing. Go chase this for for six months, and then go. Oh oh, did you think about this? It's like there was never a single laid out plan that we could just follow. And everybody's unique. I get that. But there's like no path where it's like, okay, first thing you need to do is rule out, you know, lifestyle stuff. Stop going to the hot tub. Stop going to the sauna. And then if that doesn't work, go here. I didn't feel like we had that. I feel like we're doctor hopping. Some people would have great ideas. We'd go do some, we'd go do a treatment. Um, And then when that would, when we'd hit the end of that road, we'd go to another doctor. And so I did not, even though we ended up, you know, having um, success, I felt like it was very stressful for me to, to have to go out and seek the answers and find the doctors that knew the stuff, all of the stuff. Everybody right. seems to know pieces. Mm-hmm. That's really funny that you even say that. Cause we didn't talk about this at all, but that was like a beautiful lead in to what I created my course fertility formula and like the male factor part. You know, I always tell people I created this course to be what I wish we had had along our journey where it is all laid out, it's all right there, organized. And on my male factor part of the fertility formula, I actually created a map where you literally follow it that goes step by step. You wish you'd had maybe more support, people to talk to. Yeah, yeah, one more thing, one more thought on that. I found out much later, a lot of my friends were going through male factor infertility and not talking about it. Mm. Seems to be something men do in, in silence. Yeah, they, they covertly go through these problems, um, and a lot of them, a lot of them have um, 
they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to bring light to it. They, mm-hmm. they, it's not, they're not calling me up for support. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like it's just something that, you know, we guys do is suffer in silence. Um, but had I known, you know, they're like, I even have, I even have colleagues at work that are, that are going through this and it's right. like, you know, we could have talked about this. We're all going through it together. So there was, um, I feel like if you, if you have 10 friends, 10 guy friends, there's one of them's probably ex- experience and they're trying one of them's experiencing, um, infertility and yeah. of some kind. And that's exactly, it's, you're, you're actually exactly correct. That is the statistic one in 10. <laughs> you don't even know that. And that's, no, I don't know, know that. <laughs> I know. Good job. No. And I haven't even seen your course outline, so I didn't even know that you did that, but that's cool. That's so funny. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's, that's great. And then emotional support, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like being gaslit. I don't like when people tell me, um, oh, it's, it's going to be fine. And, oh, they're going to figure it out and you'll, you'll have kids and, oh, you know, the surgery is going to work. It's going to be hundred percent successful. Even though I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, of being an optimist and manifestation. Like I'm a huge believer in the power of manifestation. Um, it, it just rubs me the wrong way when, when people just don't, don't really understand the struggle and just say, you know, um, yeah, you're, you're, this, this surgery is going to fix it. You're going to have kids next year and, um, it's going to be wonderful and blah, blah, blah. It's like, you don't know that. Mm-hmm. Just say good luck. I wish people would just say good luck. Mm-hmm. Um, and not, not try to give me false, not false hope. Mm-hmm. Make sense. Yeah. Good luck is way better than, than all this other stuff. Yeah. I can manifest myself. Um, but that's just me. That's my, that's my personal preference. Maybe other people, um, maybe, maybe they want the opposite, but for, for me, good luck, bro. I hope it works out. That's what I want. Yeah. No, you're not alone. That's very common in the infertility sector of not being told all of these things. So, one of the questions that people sent in on my Instagram was what would you want from your partner? Like how you being a person going through male factor infertility, what would you want your partner to do or be or say to support you through this? Exactly what you did. I thought you did a great job. Oh, what was that? Um, I, don't, I don't know what I did. <laughs> so I can't be, first of all, I can't be your therapist. I can be your husband and I could talk about stuff and I could talk about your emotions. We could talk about things. We don't have to like completely shut off like emotions, emotional stuff, but you had, um, either professional counselors, therapists, or you had friends. And so I wasn't, I wasn't your only emotional crutch. If you make your partner who's the, if the person who is going through infertility is also the emotional crutch, and is watching their partner like in their broken down moments, that is not the good for the person going through infertility because then you have to be the strong one and you have to say, Oh no, honey, it's okay. It's okay. You're okay. Everything's going to be fine. Even though you're the reason they're crying. So um, yeah, if you're the, if you're the partner that is not having infertility, talk to people, have your own counselor outside of your partner. I think that you did that. That was, that was very helpful. The other thing that you did that was really helpful for me is you, um, you said, you know, all the time, you remind me all the time, 
it's okay if this doesn't work. You know, it's, <laughs> it's okay if, if this procedure doesn't work. It's, really it's okay. okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, you, you, you reminded me that, you know, at the end of the day, we could be dinks. You know, we can have dual income, no kids, <laughs> or we can adopt. And so you always reminded me that the worst case scenario um, is fine. Um, we'll, we'll make it work. And, you know, you reminded me that it's not going to end our relationship. You said that repeatedly, you know, that this nothing is nothing is going to get in, in the way of our relationship. And you reminded me, um, yeah, I mean, you're a huge support for me. So, yeah, like to summarize, you having your own people to vent to was very helpful for me. I can't, I can't be your counselor. Um, and then you taking the pressure off, just, just lower the expectations. Um, be realistic. Don't gaslight me. And, and remind me that, yeah, our, our relationship is strong. This is our relationship is not riding on the success of this. That's huge. Def- diffuse that situation immediately. And constantly don't say it once. You got to say that quite a bit. Um, that, <laughs> You know, this isn't a make or break for your relationship. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, that it's okay if it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Like, it's okay. Um, so. Mm, that was really sweet. I don't think you've ever told me that. <laughs> Thank you, honey. So in that realm, I had the question and it's totally left me you've kind of hit on a lot of these questions that we got from Instagram. So you said the things, yeah. Was there anything else I said to support you emotionally? I mean, um, well, you were there, you were there in all, in all aspects. Um, you were supportive of what I wanted to do and what I didn't want to do. Takes two, you know, going, going through IVF and going through, not just IVF, but all the stuff to get to IVF. If you go through the, the journey, um, everything is a decision. You know, when you go and do it, like for heavy metals, it's like $300 for an IV to, to do chelation. You got to do like 20 of them. It's a huge commitment. So um, if I said, yeah, I want to go through with chelation and I want to set, go to 260 hours in the sauna for that. If I, if I said I wanted to do that, you supported that, even though that would that would basically take like six months to a year out of our, you know, journey to, to go try this. So you are supportive, even though we, we made decisions as a team, if I said, I want to go try chelation or I want to go try, you know, this procedure, or I don't want, I don't want to do testicular mapping. You were supportive of, of, of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were also, you were, you did a good job of motivating me to keep going without pushing me. You didn't like push me into these procedures. Like how, how did I do that? Like for someone who is trying to navigate this, like give them an example. Um, like I knew, I knew how important it was to be a mom for you. So I did, I, I didn't really need a whole lot of motivation from you, but you did, you you did a really good job of, of, you know, motivating without gaslighting. Being like, hey, this could work. You don't know. You know, this this procedure, it's going to suck. Healing from it, it's going to suck. It could work, though. You know, we don't know. But, I, you know, it, I think it's worth a shot. Like, that type of conversation mm-hmm. is great. 
you need to do this. I want a baby. Not good. Mm-hmm. Or you need to do this because it's going to fix everything and we're going to have babies. Not good. Mm-hmm. Like you have to be realistic. The expectations have to, you know, you have to be um, within reality. And then, you know, if you, if you do have to go through surgeries, um, recovering from those is not fun, especially in the groin. It's really, mm-hmm. really not fun. And so your partner to be there to understand like, all right, you're on the couch curled up in the fetal position for a week times two, three. Um, a lot of, a lot of love and compassion for that. It's tough. Mm-hmm. It's really, really tough getting surgery on your groin. Like, mm-hmm. um, it's just, it's very painful. I healed both surgeries, the, the varicocelectomies and the, um, and the testicular retrieval, I heal in the fetal position. And then I went to, you go to stand up straight and no bueno. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, don't like they're, 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 they're legit. They're probably not nearly as bad as a C-section. So preach on the choir, <laughs> but, but, um, it's, it's still not fun to go through and your partner does need to realize like you're going to be, you're going to be down for a little bit for those yeah. in those particular surgeries. And speaking of that, uh, one of the questions on Instagram was about Tessie recovery and Tessie is testicular retrieval, essentially. Um, We had to do that for IVF. And what was that like for the recovery? Do you have any tips on like supplements or lifestyle practices or stretches or anything to help if people have to go through that? Or even the varicocele recovery? Um, I mean, the only complications I had, which I did have with both, were the sutures. For some reason, dissolvable sutures do not dissolve in my body. (laughs) maybe you need sperm to dissolve sutures i don't know (laughs) but um both times we had to go in there and and physically remove the sutures which um so i I don't know if other people experience that but um that's that's not pleasant but the question um just like recovery was there anything you did that helped I took arna- uh, homeopathic arnica. I always do if I have any type of bru- uh, bruising or, or surgery. Mm-hmm. So yeah, homeopathic arnica speeds it up. Um, I would definitely not. I would definitely not. Uh, it's okay to rest in the fetal position or with your leg with your knees bent, but stretch them out every once in a while. You know, like go for a walk. Try to st- try to lay in bed a little bit straighter, um, and and then also work on work on the. Uh, on the scars for, I had, let's see, one, two, three, I had three, three big incisions and they all go away. They're all gone now. But, um, yeah, I was actively like doing scar work to get them to, to go, go down because it, it doesn't, it's, uh, it's scary for a while. And then, and then eventually they will fade as long as the sutures come out. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as like, I, I just followed the doctor's orders. The only thing I did that was extra was, um, homeopathic arnica yeah and for anyone listening vitamin c is really good for post-recovery and then proteolytic enzymes in between meals can help to break down that that uh scar tissue and then like he said manual massaging of the scars after obviously they've healed is helpful um speaking of motivation with men it's just really hard i think for a lot of men to be motivated to get a sperm test or to take supplements or change their diet or change their lifestyle or go to these things. Like what, 
what would you tell either a, a partner of a man on what's a great way to help encourage and motivate guys to make these big changes without feeling like you're being told what to do or like without being, you know, you hate being told what to do. And so just, but there's a reality that women for the most part are the ones learning this information and they have to go tell their partner. So what would be your advice for them? Motivate men to go and and study and find out if there's a problem. Um, I would say it's to figure out why, what's preventing them from being, from wanting to. I think a lot of it is fear-based. I think most men don't want to know. They'd rather not know. They'd rather try forever, um, have a really good time trying, than, than find out there's a problem. And um, So then what would you tell the men in those situations? If you really want kids and you want your, and it's important to you or your partner or you and your partner, and you, if you've been trying for months and you're, you're not getting, you're not getting anywhere, um, either you're not getting pregnant or you're not keeping, I would say get checked out. Um, it's very common. Male factor infertility is, is very, very common. And they're, we're not all the same. Like there's, there's different problems. Some people are really easy to fix. Some people you can fix the varicocele and it's done. They're, they're good to go. Um, but the, the sooner you get the answer, the quicker you'll get to, to a conclusion for us. If we had waited, uh, if we didn't find out how, how, um, if we didn't find out when we did that I had no sperm, mm-hmm. our journey would have been way longer. We would have probably been in our forties by the time we had Avi, mm-hmm. because it just takes time to figure this stuff out. Unless you go right to the end. Like if you mm-hmm. go and you just go into, into IVF, just cold. You say, all right, we're not getting pregnant into IVF. That's different. Yeah, we went but, down the journey. We, we went down the healing the root cause journey. Right. Um, but you know what I always talk about, which I believe so strongly is why we see so much failed IVF is you did all the lifestyle shifts. You changed your diet. We got the toxins out of your body. You did the IV chelation. You changed your varicoceles, which changed the, the, you know, oxidative situation in your body. Because men who have these issues that don't make any changes who go to IVF will still come out with poor quality sperm, poor quality embryos, failed transfers, unhealthy babies. So going to IVF isn't a guarantee. Like you have to work on all of these things, at least in my opinion, to to have the best outcomes even in IVF. Yeah, and I'm glad we did. Like I think we got you know, we got four really good embryos from my not so great sample. Mm-hmm. Um, I think probably because we yeah. went through, we, you know, we went through all of the steps to, to rule things out mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. But as okay, far as so. like going back to your original question, how to motivate guys to go get a sample, just tell them it's important to you Just say, babe, it's important to me that, you know, we have, we just have this answer. Can you please just take the test mm-hmm. and I'll make the appointment. Just go. It's easy. You do it all the time. Just go <laughs> give them a sample and, uh, and, uh, let's just make, let's just rule you out. Yeah. And, uh, another question that we had on Instagram was support for low morphology when count and motility are good for anyone who doesn't know the details about sperm. I have a free guide at my website, womanhoodwellness.com slash sperm. You can download my free sperm analysis guide for when you do a sperm analysis, which you can do on your own. And I tell you kind of the optimal ranges in my fertility formula. I I dive deeper into male factor infertility, but for morphology, something that's just come up recently with a patient 
is if you have poor morphology, it's often a toxin issue, poor quality diet, uh, varicocele. So make sure you get ruled out for varicocele and or check for round cells in your semen because if there's round cells, it could mean that there's a bacterial issue, either a low-grade infection or some sort of imbalanced microbiome. And there's a test that you can do to check that. So all of that information is in my fertility formula, but there's sometimes more than just supplements to take for morphology. If you want to learn about what supplements I recommend, it's all in the fertility formula. So just check that out at womanhoodwellness.com. But to wrap up our episode, honey, we went through such a long journey. It was so emotional. It was so trying at times. Um, I just have three things. The first thing is what advice would you give for couples on how to maintain a strong relationship? during this process? Like what did we do well or what would you recommend couples do? Cause a lot of people going through infertility struggle in their relationship. Just, just put your relationship first. Um, you know, continue to, to, to do date nights as, as much as you can try to keep levity in, in this, in the subject, you know, laugh at things. Um, I mean, I, I laughed at, I started to laugh at my semen analysis when I kept coming back with zero. It's like, <laughs> um, it, you have to keep it light. Um, life, you know, life's a journey. And, um, even though it's, it's difficult to go through it, you don't, it doesn't, it doesn't need to be more difficult than, than, um, than it needs to be. So I think, I think, uh, supporting each other, keeping your relationship strong, um, realizing you're both going through it, even though one of maybe one of you or maybe both of you have problems, but you're both going through it. So have have compassion for each other. Um, the person who has the problem is not necessarily the one who's suffering the most. You know, in our case, I think it was you that was suffering the most, even though I had I had I, had, I was the one with the physical problem. Um, and um, one I think a very important perspective that I've that I've always had and sometimes I lose it, but I, I typically always get it back. Um, is the fact that I see, I see my body as a, as a vehicle. I, I personally believe in the soul and the body, the physical body. And so I see my, um, I see my body no different than I see my pickup. And if my pickup has, you know, a funny sound or it's got an issue with the engine, I take it to the shop. I don't go and hide that from my, from my colleagues and my, you know, my, or my family and say, Oh, I'm so embarrassed that my, my engine has a problem. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's, it's just a matter of fact. It's like, yeah, I have no sperm. My, my body has a physical problem. It's not me. Having no sperm doesn't make me less of a man. Doesn't make me, you know, broken. It's just, it's just, it's just, my body is not me. It's my vehicle. Mm -hmm. So when I go and get bad news, a doctor telling me that there's a problem with my physical body is this, I have a, the same emotional response that I have. If they tell me something's um, wrong with my, with my truck, it's the exact same response. It's like, Oh shit. Or how do we fix this? Mm -hmm. Right. I don't have a problem. My body has a problem. Mm -hmm. And that perspective has been very helpful for me, you know. I think I think a lot of men feel as though they're less of a man, and they don't want to talk about sperm count, and they don't want to talk about male factor infertility because I think it makes them less masculine. Um, 
it, it doesn't. It doesn't at all. And so, um, yeah, I would encourage people to kind of potentially adopt that same kind of mindset to just, it's just a hardware. This is a machine. It's literally a machine. It's electrochemical. It's, it's, you know, actuators. And if it has a problem, it just has a problem. Think, think of it very matter of factly. Think of it like an investigator, you know, a little bit more difficult to fix than, than a vehicle, but it is just hardware. And my, and my, that's my personal belief. And that's the perspective that really, really has helped me navigate this journey and stay, stay positive and stay matter of fact and, um, and handle, handle news and test results um, from, a, from a better place. And you also had a really profound spiritual awareness during one of your spiritual awareness practices <laughs> that your body is, yes, your physical vessel, but also that it is doing the best it can. And to like yeah. really love your body and treat it like a child because it's not betraying you. It's not, it's not something you should punish or be mad at. It's like, it's doing the best it can. And like every supplement you take, every time you go to sleep, every dietary change you make, all of the things that you're doing is to like help this beautiful vessel that is trying to do the best it can. Yeah. That was also very, very profound. Having compassion for your body. Um, yeah, that was on ayahuasca. It <laughs> yeah. open to ayahuasca. And, uh, and yeah, that, that, that perspective. I mean, I, I had that when I was younger, I lost, I lost that perspective for a bit. I began to get angry at my body. Why aren't you, why aren't you working? Why, why do I have back problems? Why are you, why can't you recover? Why can't, why are you constantly getting injured? Like I kept having anger towards my body. Um, and maintaining the perspective that your body is doing the best that it can. And this, in this, by the way, in this experience, my body was basically saying, I'm doing the best I possibly can take it easy. Like, just give me, cut me some slack. I'm working on this. You don't even know the things I'm doing, like cut me some slack. And, um, and so I have a lot more compassion for, for my body um, and now, you know, I got injured th uh, three weeks ago. I just spent two and a half weeks um, on the ground because of a ba back issue. And I give my body the space it needs to heal. I'm not angry at the body. I'm frustrated. I get I get frustrated. But I don't I don't harbor anger towards my physical body anymore. I have compassion for my body, and I'm frustrated that I am on the floor for two weeks. Very different. Yeah. It's okay to be frustrated, and it's okay to be angry. But putting anger towards your physical body doesn't help, makes the problem worse. Right. Oh, you're so wise. Okay. I just want to end. We're wrapping up with our whole journey. We went through IVF. We were together when we took our positive pregnancy test. What was that moment like? And then what was it like when AV was born? <laughs> um, I would say that... <laughs> <laughs> the, when you had the positive pregnancy test, I was, uh, I was actually suspicious. <laughs> so, <laughs> so many negatives for so long. But maybe it's a dud. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe you didn't do the test right. But and this was after I, I was like, I was trying not to get my hopes up either because, you know, so many people, um, so many people lose the baby early and I just didn't want to get my hopes up. And so I, I was guarded. I had a very guarded heart, even though I was really thrilled and I was happy. I was, mm -hmm. I was afraid to be too happy, mm -hmm. you know? And in fact, the entire pregnancy, I was, I was afraid to be 
to be too happy. No, I think I when the baby that. started to move, when we started to feel kicking, that's when I was like, all right, this baby's strong. Mm-hmm. And that's when I was, that's when I kind of shifted towards, um, this is going to work. And then I thought both, I thought both of you were going to die during your labor. It was horrible. Like your, your labor, I was convinced you guys were going to die. Cause she was, you, we did, you know, we went to the hospital, um, emergency C-section. We get there. They're like, you can still labor for a little while, but I mean, you pulled your back, you were sweating, baby was (laughs) stuck. She wasn't coming. Then they're like, yeah, she, the baby's not in a great spot. We need to go in there and take her out. And I was, and you don't handle medications very well. You're sensitive. So I was just like, this is not going to go well. Um, once again, Big fan of manifestation. Those are my internal. Those that was my internal dialogue. I was a little bit afraid in the situation, so, um, so I try to be positive, and it, and it all worked out. Uh, best moment of my life was when she was born. <laughs> like hands down, best moment of my life. I was crying. Um, I was crying. Everybody the, for some reason, the entire operating room was full of people during COVID. Everybody's wearing a mask. There were like twenty five people in the room. I know. The whole, like, everywhere was a person maybe they were bored i don't know maybe maybe um i don't know they they were they were curious or maybe they they were in training they maybe they were student doctors but the room was packed and everybody's looking at me cry i got my shirt off wearing a mask and um rocking the baby and I mean, yeah, I was, you, you I was did vers- skin to skin because I couldn't because I was completely numb. I couldn't hold her. So you ripped your shirt off and did skin to skin in the OR. And it was amazing. Yeah, <laughs> it was an incredible day. Best, that was the best day of my life. Oh, and, and, the, and the most terrifying. Yeah, absolutely terrifying. Oh, well, it was all I mean, worth they it. Said, they said the, the doctor at one point, she looked at me, the, the OB-GYN, um, who was going to do your surgery. And she said, you're going to meet your daughter in eight minutes. And when she said that, I was like, what? <laughs> like, you serious? Eight minutes? She count down. Eight minutes. Oh, my and, God. And I like that. When, when, I still think about that. Like, that's, that's so bizarre. You're going to meet somebody that you'll know for the rest of your life, God willing. And you, you, you're, going to, you're going to hold that person in eight minutes? It's so bizarre. Being a first-time parent. After seven years. Being a first-time parent is like, it's a wild experience. It's an absolutely Mm -hmm. wild experience. So I'm so glad that we were blessed to be able to have that experience. And I hope and wish for that for everybody else listening. If anyone's struggling with male factor infertility, hopefully this episode brought you some valuable information, some insights, some paradigm shifts. And for anyone who wants, you know, data and practical steps and investigation support and all of that, again, check out womanhoodwellness.com slash fertility formula. Or you can take my free quiz at womanhoodwellness.com slash quiz, and it will tell you your fertility type, which then will direct you to the correct fertility formula for you. And thank you, honey, for being on and sharing so vulnerably all of the things. I think it's really going to help people. My pleasure. Hope it hope it's uh, hope it's impactful in any way. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Healthy as a Mother podcast. In order for others to hear this information, please leave a review with Apple Podcasts, subscribe, and send to a friend who could benefit from this content. We're so excited to share more on becoming and being a mother next time. 
And please remember that the ideas and views of this podcast are for informational purposes only and are not intended to serve as a substitute for medical care of any kind, including the diagnosis or treatment of any illness or disease. Consult with your provider before integrating this information into your own care plan. And remember, a healthier future starts now and it starts with you.